Let's turn now to Lord's Day 10 on the providence of God. What do you understand by the providence of God? God's providence is his almighty and ever-present power, whereby, as with his hand, he still upholds heaven and earth and all creatures, and so governs them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, food and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, indeed all things come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. What does it benefit us to know that God has created all things and still upholds them by his providence? We can be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and with a view to the future, we can have a firm confidence in our faithful God and Savior that no creature shall separate us from his love. For all creatures are so completely in his hand that without his will, they cannot so much move. And if I'm focusing on any phrase in this sermon, it's, and with a view to the future, we can have a firm confidence in our faithful God and Father that no creature can separate us from his love. Beloved in the Lord, when we say that the Lord God is creator of heaven and earth, we're saying a lot more than the mere fact that God made heaven and earth. As we say at the beginning of every service, we uh, confess the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, or we seek our help in the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And we're saying a lot more than just the fact that he at a certain time decided to create the heavens and the earth. If God created everything that is, he is the only person who can keep it going as well. It also says something about how God is personal. A God who has no desire for a relationship would not ever think about creating something. But there's something about creating that comes naturally to God. He desires a relationship with his people. That's who he is. The type of God who creates is also the type of God who will provide for his creation. The type of God who made man in his image wants to enjoy fellowship with man. God is in charge of the shape and the thrust of history. As the Catechism says, he upholds and so governs the world that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, food and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, indeed all things come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. By his fatherly hand. And we know when the Catechism talks about that, it especially thinks about God's people, God's sons in Jesus Christ, who can call God Father. That means that this isn't just some abstract doctrine, as in God directs all things. It's much more than that. God infuses our story with the purposes of salvation so that He will be our Father and we will be His people. That's why Paul can be so confident and say, and we know that all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. I bring you the word of the Lord under the theme, God's providence gives us confidence in the face of an unknown future. Now we're going to ask two questions here. 
Are you participating in the right story? Are you understanding the shape of the story that God is telling? And second, are you using the light? 1 Thessalonians 5 says we live in the day. Are we using that light as we make decisions in the, uh, for the future? We learn something of God's providence in looking to the stories that Scripture gives us. The shape of the past tells us something about the future. And it's not that we can somehow divine the future from what God has done in the past, except in the most general of terms. We know, for example, that God will continue to abide with his church. We know his church will increase. We don't know how, where, or when, but we know it will increase. We know that the resurrection of the dead is coming, and we know that Christ will bring a final judgment that will bring a total end to that battle that continues between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. We know that end is coming. The saints will be vindicated. However, understanding the story of Scripture can give us wisdom in response to the pressures in our current world. Internalizing the stories of the patriarchs, the judges, David, the prophets, give us wisdom in the patterns of God and give us insight into what God is like. We don't often notice, but a lot of biblical stories center around two different narratives about what God is doing in history. Now, of course, the Bible gives its narrative, and we can piece together the narrative of other groups from what the Bible gives us. The fight between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent is a fight between two different histories, two different tellings, rather, of history. One true, of course, our own, because we trust the scripture that God has given us. And to give a couple examples, when Israel demands to build a golden calf, Aaron gives a new twist, a rewrite of history, saying, this is Yahweh, pointing to the calf, this is Yahweh who saved you from Egypt. It's a rewrite of history in order to justify the golden calf. And Jeroboam does the same thing, making golden calves for the northern tribes. Jeroboam even names his children Nadab and Abijah. Abijah is another form of the name Abihu suggesting that he's rewriting the history of Nadab and Abihu who brought strange fire to the Lord in Leviticus 10. So he's, he's trying to make a different story to lead Israel away. Jeremiah had to deal with prophets who were relying on a different version of history in order to prop up their teaching that Judah should not fear King Nebuchadnezzar. Whereas Jeremiah was teaching... They had to submit to King Nebuchadnezzar. In Acts 7, there's a similar struggle at work. Stephen's speech is an exercise in alternative history. Stephen is using the history that's given in Scripture in order to convince the Pharisees and the priests that what is given in the Old Testament points to Christ's work and the work of the church. He shows how, just as Joseph was marginalized, just as Moses was marginalized. So that foretells what happened to Jesus, what's going to happen to the church. 
As far as we can gather, the Pharisees and the priests saw the temple in Jerusalem, and they see the knowledge that the leaders have from the law, how they scour the law so that they may obey the law to the letter, and they think to themselves that things are good. Yet all that that did them no good because they did not recognize Christ. Stephen's whole speech points out how God often worked on the margins of society. Abraham never saw the land. Joseph was sold by jealous brothers into Egypt. Moses was chased out of Egypt and had to deal with the loathing of his own brothers. And the speech ends with a charge. And this is, as it were, to the church. You persecute the saints, and you have always persecuted the saints. Judah and Israel have always been a stiff-necked and unruly people. They have always whored after other gods. And just as the brothers of Joseph marginalized Joseph, just as Moses was marginalized by his fellow Israelites, so the Jews are attacking the church now. And Stephen also suggests that just as God raised up Moses, just as God raised up Joseph, God will raise up his church. So why bring this up in a sermon about providence? It helps us move away from providence as an abstraction and brings it closer to providence as the Lord working for the good of his people. It also helps us understand how both prosperity and adversity are part of God's providence for his people. These are all meant to shape the lives of those who love God. We also need to examine our own hearts here to understand where we are committed to God's story and where we may have lost perspective and allowed the world's story to colonize our own understanding of how we should live. Consider how long it took the disciples to understand the shape of the Christian story. After Jesus told them that he must come to suffer and die, it doesn't seem to really sink into the disciples' consciousness. Jesus has to go outside the camp Jesus has to become a pariah. Even after our Lord rose and ascended into heaven, Peter allowed himself to lose perspective when he refused to eat with the Gentiles. So there's still, he's, he at that point is still missing the story. Like Israel, the church has often lost track of this story in her pursuit of the things of this world. So she might talk about how God cares for his children, but she's lost the big picture. Yet when the Lord ascended and sent out his spirit, and they understood what God was doing in Christ, they were able to speak the truth without fear of the consequences, because they knew that God was with them and working for their benefit. Once they understood the story... God used that powerfully. They understood God's providence. Other stories compete for our attention today. We need to be careful about sticking to the biblical truth. 
One story is that human knowledge will continue to grow until we are able to live forever. We will be able to endlessly manipulate ourselves and the world around us. Another story, almost the opposite, is that we are a disease upon the earth and we need to use even greater technology in order to use, live well with nature. Another story is that we are moving toward not only treating each other fairly, but making sure everybody is equally successful. Another story is that we are progressively more and more accepting of each person as they are, welcoming what were formerly considered perverse persons as fully productive members of society. Those are stories that are competing with the story of the church, that Christ has come to unify the, the human race. That Christ is bringing many sons to glory. Now, each of those stories has some Christian truth or some historical truth that's twisted into something that is not. Or is made into a godlike force so that those who oppose its practical outworking are considered on the wrong side of history. That's where the argument, it's 2020, man, comes from. What do these stories share? They focus on man's accomplishment. They focus on the things of this earth. Just as the Jews were focused on the temple, they had turned the temple into something idolatrous. They often have a story where man is the one who can better himself. Let's remember who God is and the history he is writing and work, out his, and work out of his truth. Remember God's call to the Corinthians to destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. We begin to do this confident in our identity as God's children. A God who cares and who will lead us in all things. In contrast to all these false stories, Stephen's story begins with God. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham. God removed him from there into the land. God gave Joseph in favor, gave Joseph favor and wisdom before Pharaoh. God comes before Moses in the burning bush to call him to save Israel. Stephen's accusers, they're not focused on God. They're focused on the temple that they see before them. And their lack of focus on God turned them into murderers. They hated that Stephen's story undermines their own story and their own place and the establishment in Judea. And the Christian story continues to do the same to the false narratives that are sold today. As we peer into an unknown future, let's be aware of the history we stand in. Let's be aware of the grace that we stand in. Sometimes we'll even tell a, a fake story about our own history, the history of the church. In a way, that's what the Jews were doing. They were telling themselves there was always faithful people. And, and in a way, there was. But Stephen comes and points out how often their own ancestors 
turned against those who called them back to God. Sometimes we tell a hagiographical story of the church. Hagiographical means telling a story that, is, that makes everything seem to be holy, far more holy, or our ancestors to be far more holy than they actually were. We make out the time of the Reformation or the time of the church fathers or even the 1950s as a far more holy time than they actually were. All we have left is a story of decline. But if God can use the homeless Abraham, the enslaved Joseph, the fearful Moses, and the adulterous David to manifest his glory, he will be with us as well. He has promised that things will work together for good for those who love him. God's the one who kept them. God's the one who kept our fathers. God's the one who brought the light of the Reformation. God is the one who's actively working today. God can do just as great things through us as he did through the Reformers. So what story are you a part of? How much do you attach the future of the church to the advance of democracy or the advance of equality or the advance of science or the glories of the West or even the great traditions of the Canadian Reformed churches? Or do you seek to be molded by God's story? Those simple words of the Apostles' Creed, God the Father, our Creator, Jesus, our Ascended King, and the Spirit, our Comforter. This is a question for all of us, including me. What values do you have that come from false narratives? Are you actively using the Scriptures to examine those things? God attaches His children to the story of Jesus as found in the Scriptures This foundation also gives us strength when false narratives become prevalent in our society. God continually came to his people, and it was through their suffering, through their weakness, that he had brought about his great deeds. At the end of Stephen's speech, his accusers rush at him and kill him. He becomes the first Christian martyr. Among his murderers is Saul, the Saul who will become Paul. As Stephen dies, he prays like Jesus, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And God uses that prayer for the sake of Paul. And Paul becomes one of the most powerful forces for the sake of the gospel. And so we see Stephen's death works together for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. It's a different light on that verse. That brings us to our second point. Are you using the light? Once you understand that providence is purposeful, that in in particular God is busy providing for and keeping his church, then you can begin to approach the current day with an enlightened understanding. Paul speaks to the Thessalonians about the times and the seasons. The second word there especially suggests that Paul has in in mind the judgment that Christ has warned about in Matthew 24. God was bringing great turmoil and trials upon that world. 
There was an end coming to that age. The Thessalonians are wondering about more specifics. Paul says, I don't really need to talk to you about that other than to confirm that the day of the Lord was coming and it was coming like a thief in the night. It comes as a surprise, especially to those who do not have the light. Those who are not awake are saying, there's peace, there's security, everything's going well. But the Thessalonians know that there's a judgment coming soon. In the same way, we don't know the future. But when we look at the world around us and we see what they celebrate in their rejection of God, we wonder, is a judgment coming our way as well? Paul tells the Thessalonians, you, you live in the day so you, don't be, so you don't need to be surprised. You will see the judgment coming. He could even point to Matthew 24 and the specific signs that Jesus gives there. It's the same with us today. We have, we have the scriptures. We have what God desires for a good society. And we can see that. We can see that at the very least, our society deserves the judgment of God. It's ripe for judgment. We don't know what will happen. We don't know. God is patient. But the things that go on can make us anxious. They can make us put our hand, heads in the sand. But that's not what God calls us to do here. He calls us to live in the light. There's a temptation to be naive, to hide from the truth, to tell ourselves that everything will be the same, that we will have peace and safety. We are, however, not in darkness for God's judgment to surprise us like a thief. In retrospect, even this year shouldn't surprise us. It's more proof that God is at work. We can see the hatred toward the church and to the basic moral teachings of the church in our society. We can see the blindness and moral confusion that characterizes our society. And we shouldn't be naive about what is coming next year either. We don't claim any prophetic insight into the specifics of the future. But it's quite possible that things could be hard, and they could be hard, particularly for the church. Being in the light, however, we are able to prepare ourselves mentally, financially, and in many other ways for the future. We're not naive about the possibilities of this life, where there is death, decay, destruction, anger, murder, and all kinds of perversity. And we don't need to be naive about the nature of the enemies of the church either. According to Paul, the smell of the faithful church is the smell of death to those who are perishing. In Christ, we're awake. In Christ, we have the wisdom to prepare for an uncertain future. In Christ, we have the comfort that we have his protection in that uncertain future. And that means that we don't need to be fearful or anxious either. We read about Stephen's calmness in approaching death, how he used his death for the sake of the glory of Jesus. It's almost as if, like Jesus, Stephen's in charge the whole time. And in a sense, because he's a son of God, 
and God is in charge, there's a sense that he is. After all, his death comes from a place of rage and jealousy. His accusers can't control themselves. They can't control themselves when they hear Stephen's accusation in his sermon. The worst thing the wicked can do is kill us. They cannot take our souls from Jesus. In fact, even our death is used for the good of those who love God. Instead, we are to be sober-minded. And it is really only God's providence, the knowledge that he is for us, that he's with us, he guards the hairs of our head, that, they can, that can give us a mindset to be sober-minded in this time. Sobriety doesn't mean don't show joy or don't show sadness. Rather, it means don't allow the accompanying pride or fear or anger to gain control in that joy or in that sadness. Right? We want to be controlled by the Spirit, not by the lusts of the flesh. To be sober-minded is to be in charge of what you are doing and saying. Notice that it's opposed to drunkenness. The drunk can't control himself. If he gets angry, he can't double-check with himself as to whether he should get into a fight. He loses control to his fear, his anger, and his lust. Because we belong to the day, we can approach the world around us soberly and without fear. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for salvation. What does it take for the Christian to say soberly, yes, I will die for Christ's kingdom in this situation? He doesn't seek martyrdom. He doesn't grow angry with his accusers. He speaks the truth. He prays for them. That's Stephen and many throughout history, the history of the church. Replace martyrdom with any conflict, any conflict that involves Christians. Can we do the same as we address the issues of our own day? Martyr means witness. We bear witness in the sobriety of our interactions with those all around. Do we use the light? Do we search the scripture? Do we watch and pray? In general, people didn't see the world wars coming, or at least didn't expect some of the ferocity of those wars. The rise of communism in Russia surprised many. The fall of communism surprised many as well. Very few saw something like the 9-11 attacks coming. Very few saw the coming failure of the markets in 2008. Christians are not necessarily going to foresee these things, but we don't need to be shocked by them either. While the world reacts with fear, anger, and a desire for vengeance, we can respond with sobriety. Likewise with our current crisis. Why? Because God has said, all things work together for good for those who love God. The Spirit can give us the strength to continue to be sober-minded in the face of an uncertain future, to be patient in hard times and thankful in good times. 
And that's because we have seen God's faithfulness proved time and time again in history. We have become part of that history in Jesus Christ so that we can confess with a view to the future, we can have a firm confidence in our faithful God and Father. Not that nothing bad shall come, but that no creature shall separate us from his love. God has taught us the purpose of history, the fullness of time in Jesus Christ. In Christ, he showed his care for his children by keeping Christ and encouraging him in his mission through the Spirit. Christ is now king, and by his Father's will, he preserves us so that not a hair can fall from our heads without the will of our Father. As Christ continues his work, he works despite the failures of his church. By grace, he still uses us in order to shine the light of his kingdom. We can approach his work with confidence and joy. We don't need to be afraid of whatever calamity may come upon Canada or North America. For all creatures are so completely in his hand that without his will, they cannot so much as move. From Psalm 98. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it, Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord. Why? Because he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. All glory be to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Amen. And let's sing in response, standing to sing from Psalm 105. Verses 1 and 5 through 7.